snakes? We have got them. We are down in the seventh of the evil pouches of fraud, way down in lower hell. Not quite low as hell yet, but getting toward it. Way down there in lower hell as we walk across the known universe with the Pilgrim Dante and his guide, the great Roman poet, or at least his imagination of the great Roman poet, Virgil. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy. <laughs> I should just record that and inset it into each podcast, since I say it the same way every time. Okay, anyway, we are in Canto 24 of Inferno. We're at lines 97 through 120, coming to the back of that canto. We have come down through the Malabolgia, the evil pouches of fraud, all the way down to the seventh one. Things are getting grimmer and grimmer. We have seen that the pouch is full of snakes. We've heard a disembodied voice. We've watched the Pilgrim and Virgil get closer so they can see through the darkness. And this is what they see. Here we are, 24, lines 97 through 120. Lo and behold, right at one of the shades who was near our bank, a serpent shot out toward him and clamped itself onto the spot where the neck and shoulder blades are corded together. Neither an O nor an I was ever written so fast as the soul caught fire burned up and was morphed into cinders just as he collapsed down to a pile of ashes. But then, as he was lying on the ground all unmade, the dust reassembled itself together and immediately he came back to how he was. In like manner, the great sages tell us the truth about how the phoenix dies and is born again just as it comes up to its 500th year and doesn't feed on grasses or grains in its life, but on the tears of incense and on black cardamom, and its final nest shroud is made up of nard and myrrh, like a guy who falls down without really knowing why, either forced to the ground by a demon's tug or paralyzed in some way that lays the guy out. When he gets back up, he looks around all astonished, completely lost in the middle of the suffocating agony he's endured, just gawking and sighing. So this sinner got back up on his feet. Oh, the sheer power of God. It's so severe that it showers down the copious blows of his vendetta. Seems like we should stop at the word vendetta. Seems like when you make God have a vendetta, you should kind of pause and think for a second. So that's what we're going to pause in this passage. We're going to take it piece by piece, as we often do in this podcast. We want to talk about the O and the I which is so odd. We want to talk more about snakes. We want to talk all about Lucan and Ovid and Genesis and how they're all woven into this passage. But before we do any of that, I want to offer you a little word of encouragement. 
Sounded very evangelical, didn't it? A word of encouragement. I feel like I'm Jim Baker <laughs> preaching on TV. This is complicated stuff. It's got Ovid. It's got Lucan. It's got Virgil. It's got the Bible. It's got all kinds of texts woven everywhere. In that last episode of this podcast, I just went insane swarming those texts onto each other, as I think they are swarmed together with the snakes in the passage. And you might at this point think, oh my gosh, I can't read Dante. I don't know Ovid. I don't know, Lucan. I'm going to go back to Dante in Canto 2. Who am I? I am not Aeneas. I am not Paul. That could be you. Who am I? I haven't read Lucan. I haven't read Ovid maybe in a while. I haven't read Virgil maybe in a while. (laughs) I haven't read Genesis maybe in a while. Who am I to look at all this stuff with this complicated weaving of text? Listen, the thing about Dante is that he is such a great poet that you don't have to know any of this stuff for this passage to make sense. You know exactly what happened here. This guy got bit between the shoulder blades. He incinerated on the spot. The dust and ashes came back together and he reconstituted and stood right back up. You know exactly what happened in this passage. It may have all kinds of classical references inside of it, but you don't need them That's part of the fun, and that's part of why we're doing this together, is so that I can spend, as I have, the last week spading this stuff up out of the text and then give it to you. But you know what? You can enjoy the text without any of it. So let me just say, don't worry that you haven't read Lucan, or don't worry that you haven't read all of Ovid, or you haven't read any of Ovid, or any of Virgil. Don't worry. The story holds together. That's why Dante is a great poet. Now to the passage. Let's start with those first three lines. Lo and behold, right at one of the shades who was near our bank, remember they've come down a little bit the embankment so that they can see better into the darkness, a serpent shot out toward him and clamped itself onto the spot where the neck and shoulder blades are corded together. This is such an interesting bit for a couple reasons. One, we are still in that Genesis fall narrative. Remember last time I told you that there's a way in which Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are in these passages, and Adam and Eve naked, and these sinners naked, and the snake in the garden, and this this kind of way that this whole Genesis passage is being woven around here. Well, it's still weaving around us. After Adam and Eve bite the apple, pomegranate, pear, (laughs) you name the fruit, whatever it is. After Adam and Eve bite that fruit in the Garden of Eden, one of the curses that God lays down on them is that between serpents and humans, there's kind of a war of enmity, that there is an ongoing battle between serpents who are cursed to slither on the ground and humans from now on out after the fall. And we can see that war playing out here, except in this case, unlike up on the crust of the earth, in this case down in hell, the serpents seem to have the upper hand. There's something else that we should notice about lo and behold in this passage, and that is we don't know who this is. 
This is an anonymous person. Now, we, we are going to know who this is next episode of this podcast. We're going to find out who this is. But at this moment, this person is anonymous. And I link this back to that voice that the pilgrim heard when they were on the bridge. Remember, our pilgrim heard a voice. He couldn't make sense out of it. It seemed unintelligible. And he basically said to, to Virgil, get me closer to that so I can make out what that character who seems to be on the move is saying. In this pit, characters emerge out of darkness or anonymity. They emerge slowly out of nothingness, out of silence, out of anonymity, out of darkness. And I think that's important because throughout this pit, as you now have already been told, we are dealing with metamorphoses. And a metamorphosis in classical tradition, in Ovid tradition, is when something physical, something with the properties of matter, gets changed into something else with different properties of matter. So a metamorphosis for Ovid and for Dante is when I get turned into a dog, I don't know, or you get turned into a fish, the incredible Mr. Limpet, if you're as old as I am. That's the essence of the metamorphosis. This is something different. There's a play going on here in that things seem to arise out of darkness or out of silence or out of anonymity. In other words, back behind all of this is a notion of ex nihilo, out of nothing, the way God creates. God creates ex nihilo in the Judeo-Christian tradition out of nothing. God doesn't make something out of something, in most cases with the exception of Eve, and oh, let's not even go there, but mostly God doesn't make something out of something. God makes something out of nothing and is the only one in Christian theology who is capable of making something out of nothing. In these passages, there seems to be a way that Dante the poet is playing with that because, again, this shade at this point is anonymous. This shade reveals himself slowly to us. The voice is coming out of silence and is unintelligible. There is a way that things are emerging out of nothingness, which is in contrast to the nature of metamorphosis as Dante and Ovid would understand it. We're going to hold that for future episodes down into Canto 25. Okay, let's go on to the next six lines of the passage. So the guy gets bit right where the shoulder blades in your neck are knotted together in a cord right there, you know, in that gap between your shoulder blades. And by the way, there is a tradition that snakes can arise out of spinal fluid. I don't know that that's playing around here, but there is a kind of folkloric tradition of that. It actually comes out of classical literature and becomes part of medieval folklore. I don't know that that's being played around with here. It might be. It seems a little stretchy to me to put it there, but okay. So that's where the guy gets bit, where your neck and shoulder blades are kind of knotted together in that hollow between your shoulder blades. And then the big metamorphosis happens. Neither an O nor an I, the text says, was ever written so fast as that soul caught fire, burned up, and was morphed into cinders just as he collapsed down to a pile of ashes. But then he was lying on the ground all unmade, 
And right then, the dust reassembled itself together, and immediately he came back to how he was. There are several things to note in this passage. It's complicated. This bit, you can imagine, with the O and the I, has caused a ton of commentary. We'll save that O and I bit for the very end. And let's just look at a couple pieces of this that call back to other parts of this. Notice that it starts neither an O nor an I was ever written so fast as that soul caught fire. Remember lines four through six that start this canto. It's about the hoarfrost writing in that tracery frost imitating the snow. We open this canto with images of writing, and now we have a direct reference to writing in this metamorphosis as a guy essentially incinerates and reconstitutes before our eyes. There's something about writing that is going on in this canto that is surrounding us. And when writers talk about writing, you kind of have to sit up and take notice. Two different times uh, in literary interpretation, you really need to sit up and take notice. One, when writers talk about writing or art, and two, when characters look in a mirror. When characters look in a mirror, a writer is signaling to you important stuff is going down because the character who is imagined is seeing a representation of that which is already a representation, a character. But that's another matter entirely. Here, let's just say we should sit up and take notice when there's writing. And what kind of writing is there? Well, there's writing that's based on other writing. As the soul caught fire burned up and was morphed into cinders. Interesting that the soul burns up, it collapses into a pile of ashes. We have a direct reference to Lucan's Pharsalia, to Book 9, lines 741 through 42. There, snake venom is said to sometimes be made out of fire, so that this snake bites this guy, apparently in a sneaky move from behind, that this snake bites this guy and he incinerates, is calling us back to Lucan's notion, somehow that snake venom is often made of fire. And there's another reference in here. He's lying on the ground all unmade, and then, you know, the dust reassembled itself together and immediately he came back to how he was. That's a reversal, we're back to Genesis, of the fall. What does God say in Genesis 3.19 as he curses Adam and Eve? Dust thou art, and to dust thou returnest. And people say this all the time at funerals, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, that, you know, we come from the ground, from the dust of the ground, and we are going to return to the dust of the ground in Christian theology because of the curse of sin. This is that, except look, it's all torqued and twisted on its head. The guy turns to dust, which is what we turn to after our death, and yet the dust reassembles and the guy comes back to life. So it's a twist on the Genesis curse or an inversion of the Genesis curse. Or in this moment, if you want to push it and make Dante a heretic, the Genesis curse doesn't work or God's curse isn't effective here or Dante is pushing his luck with theology about as far as you can push it because that which God has cursed has been unmade here and the dust reconstitutes all of that different ways of seeing it. You could take any of those at your pick. 
pick or more, but still, Genesis is sitting behind this passage that starts out with an O and an I. So, <laughs> the hardest bit of all, we should give it its due. It says neither an O nor an I was ever written so fast as that soul caught fire and incinerated. What is going on here? There are four possible reasons Dante makes this O and this I reference. And let me give them to you. I'll clearly tell you which I prefer, but let me give them to you and you can pick amongst them. In the very old so-called Otimo Comento, an ancient commentary on the Inferno from just after Dante's death, from about 1330, I think, the Otimo Comento, one of the first commentaries on Inferno, claims that the O and the I are written extremely quickly together because they can be written with one stroke. This idea that when you write an O and an I, essentially the pen can just move in one stroke between them, this idea caught on in commentary and it actually held the roost for centuries. I find it a little problematic. I mean, don't eyes need dots? You you have to pick up the pen, don't you, to dot the I in an O and an I? So I don't know how fast that can be made when you have to pick the pen up, but it's certainly passed into commentary. And even now you'll find critics who make this claim. Okay, what else could it mean? Well, O and I are the vowels that we can see in Ovid's name, in his Latin name. They're the first two vowels, but in the English, they're the only vowels. But nonetheless, we can see the vowels in Ovid's name, O and I. And this is a metamorphosis. And what did Ovid write? He wrote the metamorphoses. And so that the vowels of his name, or the first two vowels of his name, appear here, we suddenly get a call to Ovid. Or O and I is the reversal of io, io, I and O, io, the Italian word for I. If that's the case and we're playing around with personal identity, then the letters of the word I, io, are inverted, neither an O nor an I, just as this person has an inversion. He turns to dust and comes back to life. Or Dante is saying something about the disillusion of the self. You could push it this far, that Dante is making a claim here that what is essential about Io, what is essential about I, is, what am I going to say, is corruptible. It can be pulled apart. It can be torn into its component dust, its component letters, and then reconstituted. And so if you think that the self is so secure or so together, are you ever wrong? You can pull it apart and invert the letters, in fact, or turn the guy to dust and bring him back together. That's the third way to look at it. And there's a fourth way. Io is a famous metamorphosis. In the Metamorphoses of Ovid, in book one, line 646 and following, Io is the woman that Jupiter loves, gets in trouble for loving, turns into a cow, gives to his wife who abuses the cow. Poor old Io, the cow, who this beautiful woman who turns into this pure white cow. And in fact, in the Ovid story, it is said that Io, this woman turned into a cow, once she's a cow, can 
only spell her name, I-O, by, what do I want to say, scratching her hoof in the dirt. Listen, dirt, dust, this guy turns to dust, I-O, metamorphosis, to get away from the gods, the punishment of the gods. Ultimately, uh, I-O becomes kind of a poor, lamentable figure as she's kind of whipped almost out of existence, that it starts up a big war amongst the gods. She herself is a tragic figure. Also, Io has a sexual reference to it. Jupiter wants to take advantage of Io. And in fact, here, the snake from behind into the neck and shoulder blades, it is a little sexual. Snakes, after all. Um, it is ironic because Io is a cow and we're about to have a reference to a phoenix. So from a livestock animal to a mythical animal, there's a jump and there could be an irony in the text. And again, as I say, she can only spell her name with a hoof, I-O. I like the I-O of the metamorphoses answer to this question of why does Dante pick these letters here? I mean, listen, he could say neither an M nor an N could be written so fast or neither an O nor an M. And if he said neither an O or an M, then we might connect it to humans or to mankind. I mean, there's all kinds of ways he could have said this. He chose two letters and it has to be for a reason. And I like Io the cow, frankly. So that's where I would come down. If you want to look more about that, go out to Ovid's Metamorphoses, book one at about line 646 and farther and you can read the entire story there. In the meantime, we need to press on to the next six lines. In like manner, the great sages, and the only sage referenced here is Ovid, by the way, the great sages tell us the truth about how the phoenix dies and is born again. Just as it comes up to its 500th year, it doesn't feed on grasses or grains in its life, but on the tears of incense and on black cardamom and its final nest shroud, its final nesting place, but there's a notion of shroud in here, is made up of nard and myrrh. Of course, the phoenix is the bird that, you know, catches on fire and from its ashes, a new phoenix arises. This story is told in Ovid in the Metamorphoses in book 15 lines 392 through 407 and in fact all of the details here are from Ovid this whole bit of that it doesn't feed on grasses and grains in its life feeds on the tears of it's actually frankincense it's a little fudgier word in the Florentine we could say the tears of frankincense here because it's so easily quoting Ovid it's a little fudgier word here but okay the tears of incense and on black cardamom oh black cardamom a spice often associated with death and then it's nest shroud is made up of nard and myrrh myrrh more death symbols remember when the wise men bring gold frankincense and myrrh to jesus this is supposed to be symbolic of the fact that they know that the christ child will ultimately die because myrrh is an embalming spice it's a funny thing to give to a baby this whole thing has a kind of death reference to it to a phoenix but more than that a phoenix is a type of the resurrection and dante is really playing with dare i say it given that we're talking about a phoenix dante is really playing with fire he's essentially sitting a phoenix image down here, which is often considered in the Middle Ages an allegory, or to use a very medieval word, a type of the resurrection, a type meaning a representation that 
prefigures something, a type or an allegory of the resurrection here for this damned sinner who gets bit by this snake. So intriguing that A, the Genesis curse is reversed here, and B, the resurrection itself and the emblem of the resurrection, the phoenix, are all being contorted in on themselves. If Dante is playing with fire, he is playing very dangerously with it. It's one thing to imitate or parody Ovid. It's another thing entirely to imitate and parody the Gospels. Now you're in different territory entirely. Some critics claim that Dante is getting carried away with himself, that he loses control in Canto 24 and then even more so in the Canto Ahead 25, and that these cantos are fully out of control. And I have to tell you that that's not just medieval or Renaissance critics. There are modern critics who think that Dante loses himself here in the wonder of his own poetry, such that he ultimately comes to a stance of a parodic or imitative um, uh, recreation of the basic Christian resurrection story. If that's the case, I, I don't tend to hold that, but if that's the case, we can certainly see it happening around us. And even if it's not the case, we can see that Dante's edging very close to it with this Phoenix reference. Okay, let's go on and press on to the next six lines. Well, seven lines, actually. The next seven lines. Like a guy who falls down without really knowing why, the text goes on, either forced to the ground by a demon's tug or paralyzed in some way that lays a guy out. Notice the crux here. Unnatural, forced to the ground by a demon's tug, so there's some kind of otherworldly or unnatural way this poor guy falls down, or paralyzed in some way, which is a natural, uh, uh, you know, falling down that you suddenly get paralyzed. By the way, I should tell you that the Florentine word here is really stoppage, and Singleton in his commentary says that the notion here is that Dante is making reference to the moment in which blood stops flowing or stops flowing specifically to the brain, which would mean a stroke or a cardiac arrest. It, it could be. I translated it as paralyzed because the guy falls down and I wanted a kind of falling motion with paralysis. Um, but it, it's a difficult a medieval Florentine medical terminology to try to bring up into the modern age. But probably the notion here is that something can block blood from flowing, and so you collapse. And by the way, um, several medieval doctors suggest that one of the things that snake venom does is cause this kind of blockage of blood to the brain, and that's why you die. It could be all running around back behind this text. Um, again, it seems to me the important thing to notice is that there's an unnatural tug, a demon pulling a guy down to the ground and causing him to fall, or a natural cause, the guy has some kind of medical condition and falls down. So in any way, this is like a guy who something happens to him, and it's difficult to tell what. Notice that the etiology, the cause, is fudged. We can't tell why the guy fell down. We just see that he fell down. He gets back up. He looks around astonished, completely lost in the middle of the suffocating agony he's endured, just gawking and sighing. So this sinner got back up to his feet. It's a long way around to say the guy stood back up. But notice all the fudging that's going on in there. The way that causality is not 
clearly mapped inside of that the way that there is a, you can't a pin um you know let go of the rock rock falls rock hits ground you can't make a distinct what medieval was medievals would think is a distinct causality you can't make a distinct causality chain inside of this metaphor the guy falls to the ground and you don't really know why but he gets back up i think that's important i think that's all part of the arising out of darkness here there's a causal darkness and we don't know why the guy gets back up but then he gets back up Important to note, too, before we pass on to the very end of the passage, that there have been three comparisons here. There have, there's the O and the I comparison of writing, that, that the, the, the guy falls apart as quickly as you can write O and I. Then there's the Phoenix comparison. And then there's the paralytic, epileptic, the medical problem, or maybe a demon problem comparison. There's a guy walking down a road who just falls down. Three different comparisons to what has happened to this person. One, about how he is incinerated, the O and the I. Two, about the possibility of a resurrection, Phoenix, who incinerates itself, but we know the Phoenix is coming back. And three, the resurrection itself, which is the guy who falls down on a road or walking along or whatever he's doing, falls down and then gets back up, kind of shakes it off and is like, wow, what the heck happened to me? Notice that we pass through the phases of this metamorphosis through the three metaphors and that the metamorphosis is located in the phasing of the metaphors should tell us, <laughs> do I have to do this? You surely know where I'm going. That tells us that the whole passage is predicated on poetry and on writing and the stages of what happens are given metaphors and similes which are exactly the foundational uh, technique of poetry itself. It's all pushed through poetic technique as we watch this poor man burn up, turn to dust, and come back together again out to finally when the poet speaks. The last two lines of the passage are, oh, the sheer power of God. It's so severe that it showers down the copious blows of his vendetta, his justice, his vengeance. But the word is vendetta, and it's important important to notice this here. It's important to notice that vendetta occurs because, again, I've been pushing this on you, that there is a vendetta theme in Inferno that is working toward a climax. We're getting closer to the climax of the vendetta theme. And in this case, God has a vendetta with this guy. Why? Well, that's the next episode of this podcast. Why does God specifically have a vendetta with this guy? But again, I just want to point the word out to you. I could have said, oh, the sheer power of God, it's so severe that it showers down the copious blows of his vengeance or of his um, justice. But instead, I wanted to leave that word there because I think, again, that we can trace a vendetta theme. Man, when we finally get to the conclusion of this theme, we're going to have to talk a lot about where we've seen this already. But nonetheless, here it is. And notice that this passage with these three metaphors, as we pass through the phasing of the metamorphosis through metamorphic space and through metaphoric space, more importantly, through metaphoric space, notice it comes out at the end in the voice of the poet. Oh, the sheer power of God. When have we heard a statement like this before in Inferno? A 
statement clearly directed at God. God has been fuzzy. The times we've heard about God, we've heard about God sometimes in fuzzy and even heretical ways or in ways that Virgil has misunderstood God. We've heard God before. This seems just a clear Jeremiah out of the prophets of the Old Testament. Oh, the sheer power of God. It's so severe that it showers down the copious blows of his vendetta. For me, this is the poet stepping out and pronouncing the point here, the power of God that can cause these metamorphoses. But you know what the truth of the matter is? Sure, God has enough power to cause metamorphoses in Dante's mind. The problem is Dante the poet is the one causing these metamorphoses. And you can only think this is the sheer power of God if you think this actually happened. And if you think our pilgrim actually walked across the known universe, and it doesn't surprise me that all of metaphoric space ends up with the poet, in which the poet makes a claim that this really happened because it's theologically sound. Meanwhile, you'd have to believe that it really happened. And another way you'd have to believe that it really happened is you'd have to know who this guy is. That's the next episode of this podcast. So subscribe, join in the fun. I love this stuff so much. It's so crazy. I love this so much. Join in the fun of this podcast. Subscribe, drop a rating if you would. I would really appreciate it. Even just nice podcast. Wow, that would do a world of good for Walking with Dante. I appreciate that you're on the walk with me. Find me on Twitter under my own name, Mark Scarborough. You can hashtag anything Walking with Dante and I will find it and we can talk more about this or any episode and otherwise come back because, you know, listen, if you're going to claim that you really saw this, then you probably really saw a real person. That's what's up next on the podcast Walking with Dante. I'm Mark Scarborough. (laughs) See you then.